Welcome back, guys. We are in San Francisco, sitting with a good friend of mine, Diego, who I met a couple months ago down at Pleasantry. Mm -hmm. You did a little wine takeover. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. I loved it. It was fantastic. I love that was my second time in Cincinnati in the last year. And I read this article that uh, you came out of the out of the womb with a glass of wine. <laughs> Can you comment? <laughs> my family has been making wine in the Central Valley in California since basically pre-prohibition days. Uh, wine's always been something that's been a part of my life and a glass of wine with almost every meal. There was no other choice other than to have wine at dinner. Six or seven years old and drinking red wine, um, diluted heavily with water. Getting exposure to those flavors at an early age and, and actually, and also seeing how much joy it gave my parents to like sit down with a nice glass of wine. It was a good way to like, to end, the, end a day, you know? So is this, would you consider this the Leilun, this is the Leilun winery? This is it? It is, yeah. I'm amazed at how small this space is, but at how much wine you have that exists here. We've mastered the art of efficiency, I guess you could say, <laughs> without, <laughs> without having a lot of space, but... Can you describe this for, for everyone? Yes. Yeah, because so when I pulled up, I didn't even know if I was at the right place. Yeah, <laughs> this is a, um, I, like to, I like to call it a cove because I think that if you just say you're making wine in your business partner's parents' basement, it just doesn't, it doesn't have the right <laughs> ring to it. It's an underground winery. It's, uh, the house is built into a hillside. And so as a result, 14 foot ceilings or temperature controlled year round at about 55 degrees without any forced air conditioning, uh, which are perfect conditions for making the style of wine that we're looking to make. Absolutely helps us, I think, make better wines. But it is in a, in a very urban setting, very windy roads. Um, I don't think any of our neighbors, aside from one, even knows that there's that there's oh, a winery here. that exists here. Uh, but, uh, if, they knew, if they knew, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, the, Your wine would be gone before you knew it. The authorities would be here. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so we've been making wine here since 2014. John and I met uh, at UC Davis in 2010. We were both studying viticulture and enology there, mm -hmm. uh, getting our master's degrees. Initially, just became very good friends, along with a number of other people who, you know, are also friends and colleagues in the industry. Through the course of two years there, getting to know him and talking about wine and discovering wine, the seeds were planted for actually having like a future business relationship. We just both happened to actually end up moving right after graduation from Davis to France, and we were living in the Loire Valley about uh, one hour from each other so mm -hmm. i was in chino and he was in the he was in anjou we were there for about six months at the same time and you know spent most weekends traveling around meeting with different producers in the lower valley um, and just kind of beginning this amazing exploration of natural wine and you know the loire for us at that moment in time was was you know such an important part of um, of our wine making education and grape growing education and so to go put ourselves there and kind of be in it mm -hmm. um, really, really helped like speed up this whole process of understanding and, and learning how to make um, these wines that are made that can be very delicate and, and some would say very risky to make, but really the awareness to make better wines um, that are still made without, you know, any sort of added chemicals or, or excessive preservatives. Now, when it comes to this whole natural organic phenomenon, uh, kids should actually be studying philosophy <laughs> instead of agriculture. I mean, you all, you need the sense of both, but it was a cool approach to thinking about making honest wine. I totally agree. I mean, I think that this is 
this is it's more than just sort of like oh I, I think that we should make wine this way or I think you should grow grapes this way it's a way of life you know um, it's about surrounding yourself by in, in a healthier environment um, trying to promote sustainability and improving working conditions you know I mean we've converted over 20 acres in the last four years from conventional to organic farming practices mm-hmm. and as as proud as I am to, to say I've done that um, I think the, the most important thing is that, you know, for the people who help us in the vineyards, I feel confident that they can walk into the vineyards and I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to hide anything, any sort of chemicals or there's nothing that's going to put them in danger right. while they're working in that environment. And, um, and I think that's, that's really when you, yeah, when you're speaking philosophically, the natural and organic wine and grape growing side, that's just part of it and trying to support local farmers and, and local business. Uh, so it goes, it goes beyond just just this notion of, oh yeah, let's not add any chemicals to wine. You know, we want to align ourselves with with winemakers who are also promoting organic farming and minimal winemaking practices. And, and so, yeah, so we see it as an opportunity to, to also help contribute to this growing kind of um, movement that's happening right now in California that's so exciting. A lot of farmers and winemakers and producers, you put a lot of trust into where you put your wine. Mm-hmm. And who's going to drink it and who's going to appreciate and understand it more than anything. It's also about, yeah, it is about, you know, aligning yourself and getting um, getting connected to the proper restaurants and the right retail outlets. It's people who are going to um, be able to introduce the wines when we're not present, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the things that goes unnoticed in the wine industry is the number of people who, around the country, that, um, that do a job every single day to promote wines when the winemakers aren't around. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's definitely something it's so important and we rely so much on distribution to help to help spread the word. You know, it's it's hard to be traveling and promoting your and trying to grow your business and at the same time have to be sitting on a tractor for six hours, you know, whether you're mowing or you're doing some sort of like viticultural work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 hard to do both of those things at the same time. Well, it's impossible to it's, do both at the same it time. Absolutely is. And thankfully, I mean that's the great thing about the partnership that Sean and I have is that you know, we do have that flexibility that one of us can step away from California uh, while the other person is staying back. And so that's, you know, we often will kind of stagger the trips to do that. But, you know, it was about learning. It's about management. I mean, we're a new business and it's about being more efficient with your time. And then additionally, I'd say the other big challenge was that um, we had a really significant heat wave in 2017, right at the end of the growing season. Mm-hmm. And um, this is before prior, the fires. This is prior to the fires, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, we had sort of very neatly mapped out how we, which, which vineyards we were going to pick and when we were going to pick them. And based on kind of our experience that we have working with those vineyards for the last couple of years. And then we had a, about five or six consecutive days of 100 degree weather. And all of our plans got completely thrown out. Just to say that that's pretty harsh on absolutely. what your vines are used to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the biggest issue is dehydration uh, and perhaps, you know, having grapes that aren't necessarily as ripe as you'd like them to be or don't have the flavors that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily it, ha- it happened just late enough in the season that um, despite the fact that we had to, we had to kind of frantically get all of our picks set up and and get all the picks in the fruit came in more or less at the time that we wanted it to mm-hmm. in the first place it was just very compressed so we went from picking or planning to pick for uh, over the course of about six weeks to picking 
14 consecutive days and almost 80% of our production in that 14 day window. Um, we get up there the night before we, you know, we set up a tent or, you know, sleep out, camp out. and camp out and then um, wake up in the morning and start loading fruit um, as it starts to come in, um, you know, around like 6.30, a.m. And usually the picks are done by, say, if everything goes according to plan, they're done by about 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then we'll drive the fruit to the winery and start processing it. Do you have to prepare your body for this kind of stuff? <laughs> it's a tiring process. Aside from it's like, long. Aside from drinking Tecate. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I it's, it's, it's more... It's physically, yeah, I mean, it's a little taxing physically, but it's more mentally just um, nonstop. You know, um, there's not a lot, you're not getting a lot of sleep during this period, but I think, I think from doing it for now for the number of years, I've been making wine since 2006 and have worked for a number of wineries where I was pulling, you know, like 12 plus hour days on a regular mm-hmm. basis. I think you just kind of mentally know what you're getting into before harvest starts and you just commit during that, you know, that two to three month window that to, you know, being sleep deprived and, um, and, you know, a little, you can be a little ornery at times, but, oh, I'm uh, sure. but it's all, it's all because we're trying to do something unique and, and we're doing what we love. I'm loving what we're drinking right now. You want to talk, yeah, talk so about? You just drank the Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. from Venturi Vineyard. Um, Larry Venturi's a third generation Italian farmer. His family planted some of the original vines in Mendocino County through the Ukiah and Hopland corridor. And that goes it goes up to about Redwood Valley. So Mendocino County is the if you go from San Francisco and you go north, you have San Francisco and then you have Marin County, Sonoma County, mm-hmm. and then Mendocino County. Mm-hmm. So it's about a two and a half hour drive uh, from San Francisco. So it's pretty far up, but it's a really amazing region for growing grapes. Some of the oldest vines in California are planted up there. As a result, it's been kind of a hotbed for young winemakers like ourselves who are looking for old vine fruit that's farmed organically. There's a lot of organically farmed vineyards up there. They farm organically, not because it's a trend, but that's just because that's the only way they know how. Right. Um, what, what I, I mean, we've heard it so many times up there where people say, I, yeah, we were farming organically before organic was even a term. You know, for us, that's that's really beautiful because that means that it's great to work with people whose vines have always been farmed in a way that we would like to farm them. When did you transition from conventional winemaking? When did you know that you wanted to explore what was real? Yeah, I, that's a great question. We, um, you know, when I moved to Davis and started going to school there and get my master's degree, I have to admit I was... I'd been working in the industry for a couple years. I thought that um, that you needed to add yeast to your wine. I thought you needed to add bacteria to your wine to get malolactic to finish. Uh, I thought that you would analyze the wine and then adjust the acid levels and you had to get the pH to a certain amount. You had to add a certain amount of SO2 in order to keep the wine stable. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went to Davis to kind of understand the science behind why we were doing those things. It was there that, like I said before, I just ran in with a really great crowd of people who were all there asking the same questions, which were, why are we adding, why do we add yeast to our fermentations? Why do we add sulfur to our wines after fermentation? And what happens when we don't? And what happens when we don't was the, was really the big question that was sort of, you know, well, we know why we, we understand why or why we're told why we're doing it, but do we really have to? Um, and what if we don't? And let's see if we don't, what's going to happen to the wines. At the same time that we were asking those questions, we were starting to drink a lot of these wines from Europe that 
that, you know, were really, really special and really unique. And were not wines that, that I had really seen around, say, you know, Sonoma County and Napa County when I was first breaking into the wine industry. These wines were incredibly expressive. We started asking, well, how are these wines made? You know, and you hop on the internet, you start reading about these domains. And the common theme that, that we found with all of these wines was that they had really low intervention. They didn't have any added and they were very little additives other than maybe a little bit of sulfur and mm-hmm. almost all the farming in every instance was done organically. And you start to kind of put the pieces of this puzzle together and realize that all the wines that I was drawn to that were that were so just captivating for me were made in this particular style. When I yeah, when I went to UC Davis, I was becoming really fascinated by agriculture, trying to understand the notion that I heard from a lot of winemakers that great wine was made in the vineyard. But the there was a big disconnect when I was working in California because a lot of the winemakers I worked for said that great wine was made in the vineyard. But the only time I ever really saw some of these winemakers stepping into the vineyard was just before harvest. And so you had this situation where you have grapes that are growing for eight to nine months out of the year and you have wineries that are promoting agriculture and saying that great wines are made in the vineyard. Yet the most important people who were involved in the process weren't actually doing much in the vineyard. I wanted to understand what actually was happening in the vineyard. And so when I was at UC Davis, I focused on studying mostly agricultural work there. And um, my research was working on vineyards, not not looking at wine, but looking more at, at grapes. And in that process, realized that if I really wanted to fully immerse myself in agriculture and organic farming, that I felt like the best opportunity for me was to actually move to France. But all with the same idea towards looking at farming. I spent most of my time that I was there working in vineyards, spent a decent amount of time making wine, but only during harvest, you know, the rest of the time was spent in the vineyard. That was what ultimately we wanted to bring back to California. And it's not to say there aren't people here who are doing that and have been doing it for quite some time, Mm -hmm. but to again, participate in that sort of the vineyard own model of making wine uh, was very, it was crucial and the development of our business. So how has your mindset changed? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, again, it's a great question. I think that there's a place for all for all these different styles of wine in the industry. There's no set recipe for how wine should be made. Right. Um, however, I do feel that the, that the later you pick your grapes, the more that you, the more that you manipulate, say grapes in the vineyard and then subsequently in the winery, the more you have to add to those wines, the more you're going to change the flavor profile of the wine. If you say, oh, you know, we are trying to showcase terroir, we're trying to showcase the site from where the grapes came from uh, when we're making wine. In my opinion, the best way to do that is to not use a commercial yeast strain that was isolated from Bordeaux and then is now being produced in a lab in California and then is, and then is put into a fermentation in California. Right. You know, I right. want to use yeast that that comes in from the vineyard or that is present just ever present in in our environment. Talk to me about the compost that you guys use in the soil mm-hmm. at each I mean you have multiple vineyards, but what do you strive for? So the number one goal in the vineyards is to improve soil health and to provide the grapes with a a more um advantageous environment to grow healthily and to produce really beautiful fruit. Um, so we use compost and cover crops as a means to build up the health of our soil, um, not only to create a mulch layer, which helps keep water in the soil profile, but also something that increases the diversity of organisms 
that are living in the soil mm -hmm. um, so as to help combat different diseases naturally. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're, what we're really trying to do is trying to create a, a balanced sort of equal equilibrium in the vineyard where you have, you know, you don't have any one organism that's dominating the landscape. You have a number of organisms that are all sort of competing for space. Mm -hmm. And in so doing what they're doing is they, they can keep, they can keep diseases at bay. Um, and so you may have a small amount of powdery mildew in your vineyard, but that's actually okay because that little amount keeps some organism alive right. and, and allows everything to be sort of equilibrated. Right. Um, and so that's really, that's really the goal when we're using compost and we're using cover crops is to increase the nutrient content in the soil, but also instead of having to then go in and add say a synthetic fertilizer that would, um, that would in essence be directly around where the roots are, um, the, the grapes actually have the roots, have the ability to kind of seek out their own nutrition in the soil because we provided it to them by, by adding different sorts of cover crops that all, that all do something different in, in sort of the life cycle of the plant. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think the easiest way to look at it is we, we use, um, a couple different nitrogen fixing plants like clover and vetch, uh, and then peas as well, as well as fava beans, all of them pull nitrogen from the atmosphere and put it down into the soil and That's so insane. yeah and it's amazing and it's actually little uh little bacteria that are actually doing that they live on the root nodules and they are the ones that they they synthesize that nitrogen and then when the plant dies and when the and when the bacteria dies it releases the nitrogen into the soil profile uh -huh. and now the the grapes have a source of nitrogen to grow from um so as opposed to say getting a synthesized nitrogen source um this is actually organic and it's all just pulled from the environment uh it's it's all there waiting for us it's just it's just a function of whether or not we're actually how to use utilize it. it exactly um so while we were talking i poured some rosé also from mendocino yeah also from venturi vineyard um both the sauvignon blanc and the rosé which is 100 percent carignan mm -hmm. are coming from vines that were planted sometime between 1944 and 1948 uh so you know 70 year old grapevines 100 percent dry farmed which means they've never received any water other than rainfall. Um, so no irrigation whatsoever in the entire course of their life. And also farmed organically from day one. Uh, the soils up there are really beautiful soils. They're a combination of shale and quartz. And where these grapes are grown is part of an alluvial fan that comes out, which, is, which in layman's terms is essentially uh, where there was formerly a river. Okay, and, and it's not there anymore. But what happened was you get a lot of sediment that gets deposited there, and that sediment's very rich in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And you also get, again, a lot of minerals and you get a lot of rocks. And um, these soils are particularly deep. And so the roots have the ability to- Grass to, them. Exactly, yep. And they, can, and they can mine for their own water and their own nutrition. And that's why dry farming is possible up in Mendocino County. Yeah. I mean, the best soils are in places where nature is kind of most in balance, mm -hmm. I guess you would say. Absolutely. And, or, then, and, and for wine, oftentimes, or for grapes, you want to try to grow them in an area that's right on the edge of what is, what's, what's possible. Mm -hmm. um, you do want to sort of naturally stress the vines a little bit. Right. You want to put them, them in a harder circumstance than normal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and, and again, you want to, you really want to sort of like walk that fine line between them not being able to survive and them having too much nutrition, you know? 
um, because I think that's what ultimately is creating the best wines around the world. And um, if you if your soils are overly fertile, then you maybe shouldn't be growing grapes there. Um, you maybe want to grow, you know, corn or sunflowers. You know, I mean, those are things that we can grow that we grow here. Um, but you really, yeah, you want to try to grow grow grapes on marginal sites that have ample nutrition but not abundant. I, I'm constantly amazed at um, sort of the foresight that so many of the 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 first growers in California had when, when they decided what to plant and where to plant it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really think that, you know, they were, they were utilizing years of tradition from their families, having grown grapes in, in, in the case of Mendocino up in Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, and they brought what they, what they knew from, from their climate and the grapes that they were growing there and decided what was going to be best suited for, for California. Um, so you've, you've bottled this spring release. What's going on in your vineyards right now? Yeah, so coming up, right now, we're a little late this season, thankfully, um, in terms of bud break. Mm -hmm. So everything is everything's a little delayed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really a change from what we saw the last three or four years, which when we had really serious drought, that we had bud break happening very early. And what that does is it really speeds up your growing season and you end up picking grapes, say for us at least in mid-August, instead of picking them in mid-September when we would like to. And um, and so right now we have bud break. All the vines for the most part are about like four to six inches tall right now. We have three to four true leaves that have just popped up. Uh, it's a really exciting time to embracing impermanence and finding beauty in imperfection. You see it a lot in um, Japanese ceramic art mm -hmm. where, you know, you'll have 10 bowls lined up. They're all made by the same ceramicist and the, each one of them maybe has some imperfection or some flaw, but that at the, at the end of the day, that inconsistency and that impermanence is beautiful. And I think it speaks very much so to what we're trying to do here. You know, we're, we don't make formula wines. Um, there's no, there is no set formula for what we're doing. Um, we're, we're making wines that are a reflection of the vintage and our tastes and, um, and also the wines that we have in our cellar um, that particular year. We always keep like a handful of cases around and we actually bury them in the winery so we can't see them either um, because we, we do want to, we do want to push this notion of aging wine and we want people to drink wine now but also lay bottles down and and drink them later that's part of the beauty of wine is you know seeing how it how it tastes right now but then also giving the wine a chance to age and take on a different life of its own and have a different characteristic and that's all these wines are made in that style at the end of the day it's a passion it's a passion project there's really no other reason why why we would get into this other other than for that reason i truly loving what we do and trying to share kind of that love for what we're doing with with other people and it's a beautiful it's a great industry you know there's a lot of people could you imagine like you know every day you talk with other winemakers and other grape growers and other people in the industry and everyone's passionate about what they do there are challenges there are moments where where we obviously are questioning why what we're doing and we and, all have those and, moments. We, and we all have those moments but at the, at the end of the day it's still a large group of people who are all really really passionate about wine and and more so than that, even passionate about farming, because that's really where, where this is going from. It's all it's a cycle of life, and it ties back to 
what we uh, are celebrating today, you know? Absolutely. When we recognize everything that the planet does for us, we kind of have that sense of urgency of how we have to give back to it, a more eco-friendly way of doing so. As farmers, we have an obligation to leave the land in a better state than when we found it. That's, you know, my legacy. That would be enough. That's how we should all live on this planet. Only some of us are doing so. Because I think that that people right now, wine buyers and and also people who are buying food and people who go to farmers markets or have access to to well-made food. Like I think buyers now have more power than they've ever had before to make conscious decisions about what they're purchasing and what they're choosing to eat and drink. Striving to contribute a more sustainable wine industry, food industry, industry. healthier planet. Yeah, absolutely. Healthier partnerships. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we are, we're in a situation now for the for the last like we saw it with food first where people were really asking like where does my food come from what are the origins of what i'm eating now we're really starting to see that happen in wine it's such a beautiful thing because if we treated our beverages as food i think that we would think differently about what we're drinking i think that that's a great way to end the day yeah. thank you for having Super me fun. here thanks maddie